Welcome to the Cardio Ohio podcast, a presentation of the Ohio chapter of the American College of Cardiology. This is Kenny Graywell, president of the Ohio chapter and host of today's program. Further information about this podcast, including speaker biographies, as well as references, are available at ohioacc.org, where you can also provide feedback and suggestions for future topics. The podcast will also be available for download wherever you access podcasts, and we encourage you to subscribe to receive updates on future sessions. And now for today's discussion. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of our Cardio Ohio Cardiovascular Podcast. Today, we'd like to talk about test selection for patients with chest pain. And I'm really pleased to have two experts from here in Ohio to join me in our discussion to talk about some new concepts in risk assessment and diagnostic testing in patients with chest pain and suspected coronary disease. Our first guest is Dr. Paul Kramer. He's a clinical cardiologist and he's an imaging specialist at the Cleveland Clinic. He has an extensive background in cardiovascular imaging and also works in clinical cardiology. Paul, welcome. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Kenny. It's great to be part of the program. Our second guest is actually my colleague here in Columbus, Ohio. I'd like to welcome Dr. Dennis Kalnod. He's also a cardiovascular imaging specialist. He's been a cardiologist here at Ohio Health for several years. And his newest role, he's the current president of the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology. Dennis, welcome. Thanks, Kenny. It's my pleasure. Appreciate you both joining us today. There's been a lot of interest in chest pain since uh, the new guidelines came out in 2021. There's a little bit of controversy with those guidelines as well, but I do think most of us realize that it's really helped kind of clarify the clinical approach to stratifying risk in patients with, with chest pain. But even those guidelines do leave some questions and some nuances in how we manage these patients. And so our goal today was to talk about the current state, about some of the non-invasive imaging modalities, and then discuss in some specific scenarios how we would approach test selection so we can try to optimize outcomes, but also minimize sequential testing in these patients. Paul, you have a lot of experience with coronary CTA. In the new guidelines, there's a fair amount of emphasis on CTA as a new imaging technology. Now, most of our clinicians here in Ohio are familiar with coronary CTA. We've ordered the tests. Many of us have been performing these tests for several years. But at the Cleveland Clinic, what is the current state of coronary CTA in terms of trends you're seeing with volumes, both absolute and also relative to other modalities? And also, what clinical scenarios are you seeing CCTA use now? Excellent. Thank you. And I think that's a, a great place to start. And and as you said, I think chest pain is something that we see every single day in our clinical practice. And over the past few years, of course, going well before the publication of the recent guidelines, we've, we've seen an uptick in the use of coronary CTA over the past decade or so with the robust literature supporting the use of coronary CTA in, in certain patient populations. We certainly at the Cleveland Clinic have seen an increase in, in the use of the modality, I would say. Year after year, it, it keeps increasing, and I would anticipate continue to increase. So, so generally speaking, what are the sort of broad categories of patients where at least I think about using it first in my practice or, or 
or, or as one of the possible initial tests. In general, the patients at a, at a lower pretest probability. It's generally the lower risk patients where I think of using coronary CTA. And then sort of specific clinical scenarios that, that I think immediately come to mind. If there's any concern for an anomalous coronary artery, so perhaps a younger uh, patient population, and some of the younger patients undergoing cardiac surgery where you don't need necessarily an invasive cath. And then you, you did touch upon it in, in the sense that we, we want to generally avoid sequential testing. But if there is a, a functional test that has an equivocal result, which happens from time to time, I think coronary CTA can be a good test in that patient population. So that, that's a, that's my general sense of the lay of the land, that, that there's been remarkable advances in the technology and, and the literature in the past decade, and that we're going to continue to see an increased use of, of coronary CTA for our patients. Thank you, Paul. We'll talk about some specific scenarios in just a moment where we can apply the CCTA. But first, I wanted to ask Dennis about the current state of nuclear perfusion imaging. You know, Dennis, you and I trained in the 90s. We've been using rest stress spec for 20 plus years. Back in the day, patient got the same protocol, the same dose. What are the key changes and progress we've seen with perfusion imaging to keep up with the times? Yeah, well, Kenny, as, as you know, we, all of us are multi-modality imagers, so we do all the different tests for different populations. But if you look at the Medicare data from the last several years, nuclear imaging with SPECT and, and with PET is the dominant method for evaluating patients with chest pain compared to any other imaging modality, stress imaging modality, or coronary uh, CTA. So the workhorse for evaluating patients with chest pain is still nuclear imaging uh, currently, and I think will continue to be, and partly because of its feasibility. You're able to acquire a, a SPECT or PET study in virtually every patient. There's very, very few contraindications, you know, such as renal failure patients and patients with rapid or irregular heart rhythms or pacemakers or certain defibrillators that make it difficult or, or contraindicated to do stress cardiac MRI. So I think that's why it's so useful and, and clinicians have learned to trust the results of SPECT and PET imaging to make important clinical decisions uh, for their patients and guide revascularization and so forth. So I think state of nuclear cardiology is very, very strong in 2022. The things that I think are making it even better than it's been in the past are uh, some of the advances in SPECT technology, the solid state detectors that allow for more rapid imaging and, and often two position imaging can be very helpful in recognizing attenuation artifacts and uh, you know improving the diagnostic accuracy of the test. These types of cameras also laboratories to do stress first and stress only imaging and a larger percentage of patients, which can really be helpful in terms of the efficiency of the test and lowering the radiation dose and so forth. Well, I'd like to move on to some specific clinical scenarios. And I thought the way we'd organize things for the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes for the main discussion is by talking first about acute chest pain, in other words, chest pain in the acute setting, such as in the emergency room, then a little bit about stable chest pain syndromes in the office. And then I definitely want to get both of your opinions about asymptomatic patients. Is there any role for imaging, for screening for, for coronary disease? And then we'll finish by talking about future trends and new areas. So regarding acute chest pain, obviously we all know the burden of acute chest pain. We're all clinicians who see consults every day. We work in large hospitals and we know that the burden of chest pain in the ED is immense, both in terms of percent of patients, but also resources used to evaluate and test these patients. So many get admitted, they get sequential tests. Paul, at the clinic, 
in the literature, at least, there's a movement towards using risk scores to try to fine-tune the assessment of chest pain patients in the ED and perhaps guide which patients can be safely discharged, which need immediate testing. Are you seeing an increased use of risk scores in the day-to-day management of chest pain patients there, or is there still more of a qualitative to the patient? I would say that in our first iteration of our high sensitivity troponin pathway, we did formally incorporate the heart score as part of that. And it's something that our emergency medicine docs are are using, I would say, uh, on either the heart score or some other clinical decision pathway on every patient. And and certainly when we're consulting on those patients, we take that into account as well. You have the patients who rule out, who have a very low, less than 1% event rate for 30 days and can be safely discharged. And then you have the patients who have a, a substantially elevated troponin or a, or a substantial delta in, in serial testing, which will get admitted. And at least for us, I think in, in our pathway, what's been more of a clinical conundrum has been the gray zone or, or the intermediate patients. And in my experience, these are often older patients with risk factors who potentially have known CAD in those patients, because of the risk factor profile, they may not be the best candidates for coronary CTA. And it's really these intermediate risk patients who maybe have known CAD. And that's where we still, at least in our, in our practice, will use myocardial perfusion imaging as a way to risk stratify those patients prior to discharge. Though overall, I would say the high center component pathways have been a major advance and have really facilitated the safe discharge of, of a larger proportion of patients uh, than previously. Yeah, we also here at Riverside transitioned to HS troponin in 2019 and also have endorsed the use of the heart score as kind of our go-to modality, mainly because of its simplicity in terms of getting the ER docs on board. And, and I do think, of course, we could have an entire separate podcast about high sensitivity troponin, and maybe we will at some a future time. So Dennis, let me start with a scenario for you. Let's say a patient in an acute chest pain setting in the ED who has no prior history of coronary disease. So this is kind of the patient with de novo evaluation. What are the clinical factors that would make you choose either CCTA or move to stress imaging? Yeah, I, I think we didn't really mention it, but I think one of the most important things that the recently published chest pain guideline pointed out was that there is a very low risk population that does not require immediate testing. So I think That's one of the most important statements that the guideline provided, I think, is reassurance for patients and for providers that some people can be safely discharged home. But but if they do require testing while they're in the hospital, rather than being just directly discharged home, I think about it a couple of ways. One is if it's like like Paul said earlier, if it's low uh, likelihood of obstructive coronary artery disease, then I'm a little bit more interested in coronary CT angiography as a way to rule out atherosclerosis and rule out coronary disease with one quick rapid test. But then I start thinking about, you know, is the heart rate low enough and, you know, will they tolerate beta blockers and and, and nitroglycerin during the test? Do they have adequate renal uh, function and can we get it, you know, done? Is it feasible to do? And if it is, then I think that is actually an excellent test for the people that do not have proven documented coronary atherosclerosis. Kenny, as you know, we also use stress echocardiography at, you know, Riverside Hospital. And for patients who have multiple clinical questions, such as is there valvular disease, is there pericardial disease, is there pulmonary hypertension, all these other things that you could learn with the echocardiogram. And then finally, the majority though of patients end up getting a nuclear perfusion imaging and mostly with a PET myocardial perfusion imaging. 
And I think, you know, the, the reason for this is several reasons. One is PET can be done very rapidly and efficiently at a low radiation exposure, and it really provides definitive answers in the vast majority of uh, patients with, you know, excellent image quality and, you know, it answers the clinical question. And, and when we do PET, we do, you know, have the calcium information on the, of the coronary artery calcification on the CT attenuation correction images, which provides us with that atherosclerosis assessment that you get with, with coronary, uh, CT angiography. So I think, you know, for that reason, we end up doing, you know, PET myocardial perfusion imaging more often than the other modalities, but, you know, certainly we think about the pros and cons of each when we evaluate patients. How about your experience at the clinic, Paul, with acute chest pain in the ED, is CCTA a viable option and, and for which patients would you emphasize that? I would say that we do very few coronary CTAs in the emergency department. As you, as you mentioned, I think the high center troponin discussion, we could spend a whole hour or more on, but I, I think the high center troponins do a really good job of, of identifying the low risk patient who can be safely discharged. And then as Dennis touched upon, if the patient's tachycardic, if the, the blood pressure is marginal, which of these patients can you can you beta block safely and, and get an expeditious scan? So I, I would say it's unusual for us to do a coronary CTA in our current practice pattern in, in the emergency department. And that for these intermediate risk patients that do need further, further testing prior to discharge, which again, I think is, is a smaller uh, piece of the pie, if you will, in 2022, We'll, we'll, do, we'll do a functional test. And I don't think there's a strong preference over stress echo versus stress nuclear with the caveat that if you uh, have some concern about the patient being able to hit their target heart rate with, with stress myocardial perfusion imaging, we have a sort of straightforward way of just converting to a vasodilator study and getting a diagnostic exam prior to discharge. Okay. So I guess we can kind of summarize by saying there's a, probably a role for both modalities and these patients with no prior CAD, but we would tend to lean towards in the lower risk patients, maybe stress echo or CCTA in a subset of patients who don't have a contraindication. I wanted to ask about a few specific scenarios, Dennis. Uh, one would be atrial fibrillation. Another would be a patient with a larger BMI, say above 35. Does that change the thought process about test selection? Yeah, and as we mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, PET myocardial perfusion imaging is really feasible. You know, the atrial fibrillation is not a major concern for SPECT or PET myocardial perfusion imaging. And, you know, obese patients can be very well accommodated these days with the modern SPECT and, and PET cameras. Coronary CT angiography theoretically could be done with obese patients, although the radiation requirements to get a high quality uh, study and the contrast load is a little bit, you know, higher as well in these patients. So it makes it a little bit less uh, attractive. The other is as we mentioned, devices, uh, pacemaker, patients with pacemakers and, and so forth, that they can, you know, create issues occasionally with the CT images, with the artifact that's created from the, you know, the beam hardening artifact and so forth. So we kind of think about all those factors. It turns out that myocardial perfusion imaging is, you know, sort of the most feasible. And I think for that reason, it tends to get used more often than the other testing modalities. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, though, though it also just emphasize, well, something that, that Dennis said earlier that, you know, I have patients who are in AFib, but with a controlled ventricular response who are pretty active, and I do want to exclude concomitant valvular heart disease that I may do an exercise echo 
on, you know, that kind, that kind of fairly stable patient population. If I have any concern about the exercise capacity or, or the control of the ventricular rate, then, then I'm not going to exercise the patient. And there, I, my own preference is generally to do a myocardial perfusion study. So I'd say for us, we're not really doing too much or, or, or hardly any coronary CT angiography in, in AFib. And, and the obese patient population, I think it, it also it depends, you know, really what the BMI is and, you know, kind of where that is, whether where a lot of that's in the chest or, or elsewhere. But in general, for the patients for, for a very high BMI, I do think PET gives you the best diagnostic accuracy of all the modalities. Though in certain patients, I think coronary CTA is also helpful. Yeah, great. Thanks. And I, I think one trend we're seeing a little more at our hospital is sometimes we do a standalone exercise ETT in a patient with a left bundle branch or a paced rhythm, if you just want to specifically answer what their exercise capacity is, and then you can still do the vasodilator stress to optimize the assessment of ischemia. Just briefly, do you think there's any different considerations in, in outpatient setting? We've been talking about acute chest pain, but obviously we see in the office setting, we see patients who present with more chronic chest pain syndromes. And I think a lot of the same thought processes are at play. Is there anything different about that patient population, Paul, in terms of test selection? Do you think there's still plenty of CCTA candidates in there as well? Yeah, I think there are. For, for me, in the, in the stable outpatient setting, I had two things that come to mind. One is, does the patient have established atherosclerosis? And if we haven't done that assessment and it's a, a lower pretest probability patient population, I think coronary CTA is, is very helpful. Now, practically speaking, a lot of our patients have had CT scans at some point in the past, and that's often very useful in clinic just to pull that up and see the extent of coronary calcification. And even though it's not a, a diagnostic coronary calcium score, it sort of gets get you pointed in the right direction. And then two, to what extent are these uh, symptoms related to exertion or physical activity? And, and, and I still like you know, I still like to exercise all the patients who have exertional symptoms to see if those can be reproduced. And then in, in terms of specific test selection, if I want to get a functional test to assess the symptoms of a patient there in terms of echo versus myocardial perfusion study, it, it depends for me a lot on the history. If it's a lower pretest probability patient, someone I know in the past has had an echo with, with a normal EF, then, then I'm okay doing a stress echo. But if it's a, a patient who's got established coronary disease or higher risk patient population, at least in our clinical practice, those are patients that we, we tend to, to send more towards an exercise myocardial perfusion study. Thanks, Paul. So Dennis, how does the thought process change in these patients we see in the office who have known disease in terms of previous PCI? Or coronary bypass. Would you agree that CCT is really not for them and that we should be thinking about functional testing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way I look at it, when we see people in the office, I try to ask myself, what's the clinical question? You know, if the clinical question is, are the patient's symptoms of chest pain or exertional dyspnea caused by obstructive coronary artery disease? And would the patient benefit from uh, myocardial revascularization? then that's where I think the best test is functional imaging with, with, with nuclear imaging. If the clinical question is, does the patient have coronary atherosclerosis and would they benefit from a statin or aspirin? That's where I definitely, you know, lean more towards uh, CT, whether that's actually coronary CT angiography or whether that's calcium scoring together with some other type of uh, functional test to get sort of the best of, of both. But for patients with previous PCI, 
uh, or patients with previous coronary bypass grafting. I think the, the role of, of coronary CTA is quite limited. The chest pain guideline says that if, you know, the stent's larger than three millimeters in size, you can do coronary CT and geography in these patients. But I find that it, it, it's rarely definitive in terms of answering that clinical question that I, I told you, you know, whether there's, you know, symptoms are caused by progression of their coronary artery disease. And similarly, in patients with previous bypass surgery, coronary CT angiography is very good at establishing patency of bypass grafts, but it's not very good at determining whether there is progression of the native vessel disease, you know, distal to the bypass grafts and whether or not that's causing ischemia and that's causing the, the patient's chest pain. So I think that coronary CT, coronary CT angiography rarely answers all of the clinical questions in the patients with established you know, coronary disease and prior revascularization. And I think that, uh, you know, myocardial perfusion imaging is much better in answering the questions in that population. Uh, great. So you both briefly mentioned asymptomatic patients and screening. So I just wanted to take a couple of minutes and talk about that. So, you know, you guys are both clinicians. You see office patients every day, every week. As you know, we're seeing more and more patients who come in, maybe they have a family member with heart disease. Maybe they're just more aware of cardiac risk and they want to be assessed. I think you'd both agree that these days we very rarely would ever consider like a stress test for an asymptomatic patient, possibly even a CCTA. But so Paul, what, when do you think about getting a calcium score now in your, in, in these office patients who present for screening and, and how do you use that information to guide their management? Yeah, I think that's really the important point. The last thing you said is is to guide the management. And just to reemphasize what you said, I think we, we shouldn't be doing stress testing in patients who are asymptomatic. And then for further risk stratification in the asymptomatic patient population, you know, I think if you if you go over the risk with the patient and obtaining a calcium score, uh, which can be very helpful, and then is going to change subsequent decision-making in terms of lifestyle modification and initiation of, of typically statin therapy, then I think it makes a lot of sense. I totally agree. I use calcium scoring a lot. I'm a, definitely a big fan of coronary calcium scoring for patients who are not currently being treated with statins, but have family history and, and so forth. The other thing, the only patients who I will sometimes order exercise ECG testing would be like very sedentary patients with bad family history who are interested in uh, starting an exercise program just to be sure there's no findings so we can reassure them that it's safe to really intensify their exercise. Yeah, I, I think that's that's very reasonable. And the, the only other point I would add is so many of our patients have had CT scans at some point in, in the past few years before we've seen them. And I know with our fellows, you know, after you look at enough calcium scores, you look at enough CT scans, obviously those studies are not optimized for that, but, but I still think you can get in the, in the ballpark with reasonable accuracy. And again, I think that can be very helpful. If I have a patient who had a CT scan six months ago, and it's clearly severe coronary artery calcifications, I've sort of already to kind of define that patient as having, having atherosclerosis. Great. I think that's a really important point that it should really be used to guide decision-making. So just in our last couple of minutes we have together, I want to just talk about future trends in imaging. You know, there's so much evolution with all of our imaging modalities. It's hard to keep up in the literature and certainly for non-imaging providers, it's even more confusing. So Paul, regarding coronary CT, it's still a, a evolving modality. We've heard about some new future technologies that are going to be applied like FFR et cetera. Can you just comment on what you see as some of the, you know, future trends that we should be exploring or we expect to see? 
Yeah, Kenny, thanks. And, and I, I think we will, you know, given the, the track record over the past 10 to 20 years in coronary CTA, continue to see advances. I think it still remains to be seen where a lot of these advances, where, where the tread will meet the road uh, in terms of really impacting our, our clinical practice. So I think there's a lot of interest in sort of in, in high-risk plaque features to identify high-risk patients and and are those patients that may benefit from more intensive medical therapy. We didn't talk about CTFFR, but that's, that's a very, um, very hot topic. I can say that, that at least in our practice currently, we're not using uh, CTFFR. I think there is some encouraging data that it, it may prevent subsequent invasive coronary angiography, though, though I, I think the literature actually uh, still has a long way to go in terms of data related to clinical outcomes. I, I still think it's, it's at least in our practice, not, not quite ready for, for prime time clinical use. And Dennis, with regarding perfusion imaging, you, you kind of touched already on some of the new trends like stress-only imaging. What do you think are the important ones that are going to help a uh, nuclear imaging evolve in the next few years? Yeah, well, I think PET imaging is clearly, you know, superior in, in, you know, many ways. So PET imaging, as we talked about briefly, has, you know, higher accuracy, lower radiation dose, the ability to quantify left ventricular function at peak stress. And the single most important thing that PET imaging provides is the ability to measure myocardial blood flow, which in my opinion is really a game changer when it comes to non-invasive uh, imaging. Myocardial blood flow allows us to increase our ability to detect multivessel coronary artery disease and balanced ischemia. It allows us to uh, verify that the patient responded to vasodilator stress, something that we never actually uh, know when we do uh, conventional imaging without myocardial blood flow assessment. And we're learning that there's all kinds of other applications for myocardial blood flow that will be used in the future, evaluating patients with you know other conditions, aortic stenosis, amyloidosis, hypertrophic, Cardiomyopathy, there's many conditions where myocardial blood flow information will be so useful clinically to help make decisions in the future. The other key thing I think for the future is that we're going to see hybrid imaging where we do myocardial perfusion imaging combined with uh, coronary calcium assessment, whether that be a formal calcium score or, or just a CT attenuation, a subjective assessment of calcification. If you can do a myocardial perfusion imaging study with myocardial blood flow assessment and measure uh, coronary artery calcification to assess the extent and severity of coronary atherosclerosis, you've basically answered all the possible clinical questions you could have with, with one procedure. And I think that that will be tough to beat in terms of, you know, the, the clinical value for patient care. So I think that's why I'm so optimistic about the future of nuclear cardiology is because of these kinds of advances. Well, I think we're going to wrap things up. I do have a few take-home synopsis points I put together, and I'll just uh, mention those, and you guys can chime in if uh, you need to expand on any. But it sounds like from uh, from what you've told us, there is a role for risk scores and acute chest pain in the acute setting to help stratify risk. Uh, Paul, you mentioned that the real value is when it picks out a low-risk patient who can safely be discharged. It sounds like for patients with no prior history of coronary disease, both CCTA and stress imaging have a role, and it's really an individualized decision based on access to the testing, things like heart rate, BMI, et cetera. Dennis pointed out that in patients with known CAD, perfusion imaging is really still the modality of choice, and CCTA just doesn't have a big role there. I think you mentioned that for asymptomatic screening, that calcium scoring is, is preferable, but that we should use it kind of 
in a, in a situation where it's really going to guide uh, decision making. And then you both touched on some future uh, trends as well. Uh, Paul, did I miss anything? Uh, or is there anything else you want to add for our listeners before we wrap up? I think that was a, a fantastic summary and, and it's, it's been a, a great discussion. And, and I think, you know, as, as even in this short time we've been talking together, you can see how these patients we're seeing every day, the decision-making really d- does become nuanced. And in terms of, and I think as, as Dennis said, you know, what is the primary question you're trying to answer here? And what is, what is the best, best test to do that for your patient? Dennis, any final thoughts on your end? I, I would just say that, you know, at, at ASNIC, we're always uh, sort of promoting the patient first approach to test selection where the patient's own preferences and considerations should come into play and the physician should think about all the test options and the advantages and disadvantages of all of them and, and determine what's the test that's most likely to answer the clinical question for that patient, you know, in a cost-effective way. And so I, I just want to stress that I think that's the the message that we need to make sure we keep uh, relaying to our referring physicians and our payers and our policymakers that physicians need to be able to make that decision. Well, I want to thank you both for your insight and perspective. This podcast will be posted at ohioacc.org. We'd love to get your feedback as listeners about future topics or thoughts you have about our podcast. So thank you, Dennis, and thank you, Paul. And we look forward to uh, future discussions as well. Thanks, Kenny. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for joining today's podcast. For more information about the speakers or the topics, please go to ohioacc.org, where you can also provide feedback and suggestions for future topics. The podcast is also available for download wherever you access podcasts, and we encourage you to subscribe to receive updates on future sessions.